It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's today's special guest, Philip Hartman. Okay, well, why don't we go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. By the way, for those who are streaming this morning, my name is Philip Hartman. Eric is actually out of town this weekend. He's up in Canada uh, doing a conference up there, so you can be praying for him if you think of it. But my name is Philip Hartman. I'm on the staff here at Ellerslie, and uh, I direct our five-week training for the classic training as well as our one-week and uh, online uh, program. So why don't we pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have laid up for us, for those of us who have believed in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning as we talk about the nature and the character of who you are, Lord, would it not just be words, would it not just be a, a, a nice sermon or a nice message or a nice devotional, but Lord, that somehow you would, you would break through and that we would behold the reality of who Jesus Christ is, and in beholding that it would transform us, and that in beholding it would change us into the image of Christ. Lord, would we not only be hearers of your word, but would we believe it and do it, that we would live in light of the grand realities of who you are and the grand realities of what your word teaches us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those of you who have been to the training, you obviously know that one of the things that we oftentimes have done in the pastoring or training is we've walked through different attributes of God, God, different characteristics of God, who he is, and what his nature and character is, and, and the names of God is revealed in the scriptures. And so one of the things that's just been really uh, in my meditation recently and something I've been pondering is one of the names of God in particular, which is Jehovah Sabaoth. And this is one of my favorite representations or, or ideas of who God is in the scriptures, and, and you see it all throughout the scriptures, and we're going to walk through that a little bit this morning. And so, first off, I, I should talk a little bit about, you, you have this name, Jehovah, which is the proper name of God. Jehovah is the, the name of God that was revealed in Exodus chapter 4 at the burning bush, and it was this idea of, he says, I am that I am, representing his unchanging, eternal nature, that God is, he has been, and he always will be, and he always will remain the same. There is no change in him, there is no shadow of turning in him, that God is, and that we can build our lives upon that reality. And so, that's the name, Jehovah, and if you were to look at the name of Jehovah, God says, I am that I am, and then Jehovah is, is the third person, us saying, he is that he is. It's like it is in, in Hebrews chapter eleven six, where it says that he who comes to God must believe that he is. It's this idea of him being the I am, the unchanging, eternal, everlasting God. And so throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, you have these revelations of the character of God, and, and a lot of them are what I call the Jehovah compounds. So you'll have Jehovah then with a second word. And part of the reason for that is that this idea, even within the name of Jehovah, is, is that he is, but that he is actively doing things in this world. And so you have these different, these different names. For example, one of the names is that he is Jehovah 
Jireh, the Lord who sees, the Lord who provides, the Lord who makes provision for his people. And we know that that was ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus as he was provided as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And so you have these Jehovah compounds. You have Jehovah Rapha. A lot of people have heard of that. The Lord who heals and, and, and makes whole that which is broken down. And so we have this name revealed, Jehovah Sabaoth. And it means the Lord of the hosts. Now, just before I dive into it too far, Jehovah Sabaoth has nothing to do with the Sabbath. Uh, I, I remember for a long time, whenever I read the name Jehovah Sabaoth in the scriptures, I would think that uh, it meant he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That's not what it means at all. So if you thought that, that's okay. I thought that as well. Uh, but, but the idea of Sabaoth is this idea of the hosts, that, that our God is the Lord of the hosts. Now, this idea of host is really interesting in the Hebrew and the way that it's used throughout the Old Testament. And, and the question that it begs is, which host? And, and, and the answer is, every host. Pick one. He's Lord of all of them. But he is the Lord of all the hosts. So this idea of host, is, it's, it's that which goes forth to battle. It's, it could be an army. It could even be down to even the individual level of, of those going forth to battle. It's also this idea of angels, so the hosts of heaven or the, the host of the, the angels. But then it's also this idea of, of heavenly bodies in, in terms of the, the bodies of the stars, the sun, the moon, and, and, and the, the planets out there. The, the hosts of heaven, not, not in terms of angels, but in terms of the, the stars and, and all the heavenly bodies that, that he is the Lord over all those. And then it also used it in the Old Testament in terms of all of creation, the host of, of creation, you could speak, that all of creation is, is referred to in this term as him being the Lord of hosts, meaning that all of creation is working in one accord in submission to Jesus Christ. And of course, we know that before sin entered into the world, that, that all of creation was revealing the glory of God until man fell away and fell out of, of obedience to him as the Lord of hosts. So I want to read you just a few passages here that, that give us idea of who our God is as the Lord of hosts. So, so Psalm 46 is a really famous passage. You probably read it many times, but here's what it says. We're going to start in verse 1, go all the way through verse 11. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of a sea, Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. He utters his voice, and the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Ponder that. Pause. Remember this. Think about this. What a reality that you have all these incredible statements. The kingdoms raged. The Lord spoke. The earth melted. And yet, we will not be moved. Why? Because the Lord of hosts is with us. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He makes wars to cease under the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in sunder. He burns the chariot in fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in all the earth. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. No wonder we can be still and know that he is God. It brings you back to when God told Moses, be still and watch what I'm going to do. Why? Because the Lord of hosts was with him. Why should he fear the host of Egypt? Because our God is Lord over all hosts, both the good and the evil. But he is Lord of all. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Psalm 24 says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Psalm 84 says, O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man that trusts in thee. Isaiah 6. We all know this passage where, where Isaiah beholds the Lord high and lifted up. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings, and with twain he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's interesting, all, all of our songs actually cut out <laughs> the Lord of hosts and just say the Lord. But holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of a door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. Why would you be undone if you recognize that the Lord of hosts is holy, 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 and you're not holy? Because it's terrifying. It's terrifying if the Lord of hosts is a holy, holy, holy God, and we recognize that we are not holy, not holy, not holy, that he saw the burning holiness of the Lord of hosts, and he says, woe is me, I am undone. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah 13 you see this idea of the heavens here. It says, Therefore I will shake the heavens, and the earth shall remove out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. Don't mess with the Lord of hosts. This, this incredible Lord. And yet then in Isaiah 47, and you see this in the first uh, section of Isaiah, you see very much this, this the law being represented and the condemnation that is upon man because of our sin. And in the last part of Isaiah, you see the, the, the hope of the gospel through the Redeemer that is going to come. And this is what Isaiah 47 says. I love this verse. It says, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, the Holy One of Israel. So just as on one side, the, the Lord of hosts is a terrifying thing, on the other side, you recognize that if the Lord of hosts is the one that is redeeming you and is saving you, that he will tax every power in order to do that. And Isaiah 51 says, But I am the Lord thy God that divided the sea, going back to Moses and the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea, whose waves roared, the Lord of hosts is his name. You see this power over the host of creation. So I want to talk just a minute about the power of, of the host, just to give you just a, a, an idea. Now, obviously, we know that God is God. 
In other words, just forget the host. He's God. And yet, even with all of the hosts in mind, there's no reason why we should ever fear anything as those who are on the side of the Lord of hosts. So if you go to Matthew 26, this is in the Garden of, of Gethsemane. And what you see is, is, is they're coming to arrest Jesus. And Peter gets really brash, pulls out his little sword, chops off somebody's ear, and, and Jesus rebukes him. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Now, I, I want to just mention this real quick. 12 legions of angels is not the whole heavenly host, okay? This is just some small part of it. He says, Did you not know that right now I could call out 12 legions of angels? Now, a legion in the Roman uh, times was 5,120 soldiers, and oftentimes it was up to 6,000 because they'd have auxiliary units, I don't know, scouting or something like that, uh, that would also be a part of a legion. Okay, but we'll take the low number, 5120, and so, so 12 legions of angels would be 61,440 angels. Okay, 61,440 angels. That's 5120 times 12. Now, do you guys remember the story of Hezekiah in the Old Testament that, that what's taken place is the people of God have rebelled and, and you have the split kingdom. So you have the 10 tribes, or, or 10 and a half tribes actually, of, of Israel, and they were headquartered in Samaria. And then you had Judah, which was Judah plus a half tribe of Benjamin, and they were headquartered in Jerusalem. Okay, so you have a split kingdom. And Israel had no good kings. So they went extinct a little earlier, okay? And then Judah had a few good kings, which, which God honored, and, and those kings ended up being taken over by Babylon in the long run. Well, what has happened is the Assyrians have come in, and they've just wiped out Israel, and they've scattered them all over, and, and, and that's why they're called the lost sheep or the, the scattered tribes of Israel, okay? So, so Judah now is terrified because the Assyrians have taken out the ten tribes, Judah, which is one and a half tribes, is still remaining, and yet the Assyrians have come in and completely surrounded Jerusalem, and, and I think the statement by the king of the Assyrians at that time was that he had Hezekiah, who was the king of, of Judah at that time, he had him penned up like a bird in a cage. Okay, this is the, the position of Judah at that time, and yet they cry out to the Lord, they seek the Lord, and, and the Lord sends one angel Okay, and that one angel comes, and if you guys remember, what happens is that one angel comes and he destroys 185,000 soldiers, and one night, the Israelites, or sorry, the, the tribe of Judah wakes up in the morning, and boom, 185,000 soldiers dead, and, or, or gone, and uh, they're, they're, they're praising the Lord. Now, that's just one angel, and Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, put away your sword, don't you know that if I wanted, I could bring at least 12 lineage? You know what? If one angel can kill 185,000 one night, that, that, that means that just 12 legions would be 11.4 billion people. Jesus didn't need Peter helping him. Besides the fact that Jesus is God. And he created everything that is in this world and all the hosts that are created by him. There's nothing that we should fear as the people of God. And you recognize that when you actually grab a hold of this as reality, it changes the way you live. But this isn't just a, a nice thing about, oh yeah, that's true. But if you actually grab a hold of this and believe it as reality, it changes you. 
There's a, the classic story of Gladys Howard, who was a, a, apparently, I think she was like five foot two or something like that. She was extremely small and this, this short little missionary lady to China. And it, when she went as a missionary, it wasn't quite like we do it here where we hop on a nice jet with three meals and fly somewhere and get there and then go to our, you know, five-star hotel or whatever missionaries do with their money. And, and uh, I'm sure most of them use it well. I'm not saying that. Uh, but, but anyway, so she goes over, but she's going alone, and she's traveling across Russia to get to China, and she's going through war zones, hopping from train to train to try and get to the mission field. And at one point, because they actually think that, that she might be a spy and, and there was some, some, some confusion on her passport, she's stuck in this one location. And she's staying at this hotel that was a, a rather dangerous situation. And this hotel doesn't have locks on the doors. And at some point, the proprietor of the hotel comes in and, and is going to take advantage of her. And she's standing there. He's standing in the doorway. And he says, I can do whatever I want to with you. you. You're basically my property. I'll do whatever I want. And here's what Gladys Alward says. She says, sir, you take one step forward into this room, and you'll find out that the God of the universe is between me and you. And a man stands there and shudders and flies. Uh, you see similar stories about Mary Slessor, who was a missionary to Africa. And Mary Slessor goes to Africa and... and over and over and over again, she faces these tribal people who are threatening to kill her and, and giving all sorts of threats, and yet she faces them with dauntless courage, with fearlessness. Why? Because she believed what the Word of God teaches. That's why. It wasn't because she had some extraordinary you know, background that, that taught her how to be fearless. It wasn't just because of self-motivation talks. It was because she believed the Bible. What would it look like in the situations that we face, in the, in, the, in the petty challenges, even though they don't ever feel petty, that we walk through, if we actually believed that he is the Lord of hosts, if we actually walked in light of this, you see the story in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, where you have Elisha, the prophet, and his servant, and, and the Syrians are coming after them and to try and find Elisha, because the king's pretty upset, because... Elisha knows exactly what they're going to do. And so he comes after them, the king of Assyria does, and in the morning, his servant wakes up and goes outside, and all around the city is surrounded by the chariots and the horses and the army. And, and, and the servant comes in and says, Alas, master, what are we going to do? And Elisha says, Don't worry about it. There's more of us than of them. And... and the servant goes, what in the world are you talking about? There's two of us and many of them. And then Elisha prays and says, Lord, open the servant's eyes. And the Lord opens his eyes, and there's chariots of fire all around him. And, and then Elisha prays, and they, they go blind, and you have the whole rest of his story. But you recognize that that's not just something that happened there where God sent some chariots in. But at any moment, when we were walking as children of God in obedience to him, that we can say the same thing. There are more with us than with them. And we don't need to have our physical eyes open to see a bunch of chariots of fire, but when we believe what the word of God says, that it is reality and that we need the eyes of our faith open to understand the realities of the gospel, the realities of who our God is in light of what his word says. And we can walk with the same boldness 
that Elisha walked with in that situation. So this name, Jehovah Sabaoth, is first revealed in the scriptures in 1 Samuel. In fact, where it's revealed is you have Hannah, and, and she goes, if you remember, and she's praying for, for a child. Okay, and of course, we have Samuel is born as a result of that, but she prays to the Lord of hosts. And that's where we first see this name used in the scriptures. But, but then you see it used a little bit in the Psalms, but then where it's mostly used in the scriptures is in context of the prophets. That's, that's the, the huge bulk of where this term is used. And there's a very specific reason for that. The prophets were dealing with a very specific time in history. It started with David, and, and then you have really his son Solomon, and the people begin to go away because of, of Solomon. They split after Solomon's son takes control of a kingdom, and, and you have this whole season of the people of God occasionally coming back to the Lord, but for the most part, falling into sin and, and disrepair. And so God sends his prophets to warn the people and, and to entreat them and to warn them of what's going to happen. And so you, you see all throughout the prophets this statement of, thus says the Lord of hosts. Now you recognize that, that the hosts oftentimes were very physical hosts in that time. Okay, so the prophets came and they foretold of the destruction of what was going to happen to the people of God if they didn't follow him. But then they also foretold of what God was going to do. And God did that. He even used very physical hosts, such as the hosts of Babylon, to come in and punish his people. And, and, and they came in and punished his people. But then we also see God using those same exact hosts to allow his people to come back to Jerusalem. And so you see God using the very earthly realm hosts, both to bring punishment for sin, but then also to bring about this, this work of redemption ultimately being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. So I want to just show you a few passages here, but you see this, this phrase, when you read a prophet sometimes, notice how many times it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. So for example, Nahum 2 says, behold, I am against thee, Nineveh. Well, I, Nineveh is who he's talking about. Saith the Lord of hosts. What a terrifying statement. I am against thee, Nineveh, says the Lord of hosts. You see, we, you know, if you were to imagine with me for just a minute, the president of the United States is the commander of the armed forces of the United States of America, right? So he's over all of the armed forces of the United States of America. And if you were to imagine that, that five guys here in Windsor, Colorado, were to say, you know what, we're rebelling against the commander of the armed forces of the United States of America, come get us. And these five guys, you know, they've got big muscles, but they're five guys. And, and, and can you imagine... Our, our president right now, Trump, were to say, armed forces, go get them. I'd be uh, betting on the armed forces of the United States of America, not the five guys. That's just one little nation, big nation, in all of history. And yet our God is the Lord of hosts. And he says, Nineveh, I am against thee. Wow, what a terrifying statement. And I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall be heard no more. So oftentimes in the, in the context of the prophets, the Lord of hosts, thus saith the Lord of hosts, was almost giving this added weight to the reality of, it will surely be done. 
Why? Because the Lord of hosts is saying it's going to be done. And if he says it's going to be done, most surely it will be done. It says in Jeremiah 19, And say, Hear ye the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, the which whosoever hears his ears shall tingle. Micah 4.4 4 says, But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. So you see these, both of these sides. One side, when God says, I'm going to bring destruction, he will most surely bring destruction because he is the Lord of hosts. And then you have the other side, where as he brings promise of redemption, he says every man's going to sit underneath his fig tree and nobody's going to make him afraid because the Lord of hosts said it. Isaiah 14 says, For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who shall disannul it? And his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Now you recognize that our God, as the Lord of hosts, is restrained by the nature of the Lord of hosts. Are you following me? In other words, he is the Lord of hosts, and, and, and all hosts are submitted to him, but he, he is the Lord and restrained by his own unchanging nature. And so as the Lord of hosts, he will never do something that is contradictory to his nature. And, and for example, you see this with disciples. I don't know if you remember, but there was a circumstance where, where some men spoke against the Lord, and the disciples said, oh, hey, Lord, should we call down fire upon them? You know, that would be pretty cool. Right? I mean, they believed he was the Lord of hosts. They said, how about we just called on fire upon him? And, and the Lord rebuked them for that. Because they were thinking, oh, this is cool. Maybe we can use some of his power to, to, to use for our own means, our own desires, to bring punishment in their own way. And you recognize that that's not the nature of God. That the nature of God is full of mercy. That the nature of God is one that is entreating men to repent of sin and believe in him. And so the Lord of hosts will only do that which is in accordance with his nature as the Lord of hosts. But you recognize that his nature is such that as a holy, holy, holy God, he is dead set on destroying darkness. He is dead set on destroying darkness, which is a great balm to those who have entered into the Lord Jesus and are walking in the light. Because as, as he is sanctifying us and cleansing us, that he is dead set on destroying the darkness in us. And sanctifying us so we'd be more like him. And it's also a terrifying woe to those who have set themselves in opposition to the Lord of hosts. And you see this idea throughout the Old Testament of those who are with the Lord of hosts and then those who are against the Lord of hosts. And you constantly see this contrast of woe to those who are against the Lord of hosts. And yet, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord of hosts. I want to read a few passages about those opposing the Lord of hosts. Haggai 1, he's talking about those who are against the Lord of hosts, and he says it twice in verse 5 and verse 7. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. 1 Peter 5 says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
what a reality that the Lord of hosts is resisting the proud. James 4 says, You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus said unto them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of a corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. That is a terrifying statement. Psalm 2, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in sore displeasure. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare a decree. The Lord has said unto me, thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord of fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. And so then you see all throughout the scriptures that idea of being on the side of the Lord of hosts. There's this passage in Zechariah chapter 1, right in the beginning of the chapter, verse 3. It says this, Therefore say unto them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto thee, saith the Lord of hosts. It's amazing in that, that short little sentence, it says the Lord of hosts three times. This is what the Lord of hosts says. Turn unto me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, says the Lord of hosts. I think he wants to make sure we know who's speaking. That though he is the Lord of hosts, those who repent of their sin and turn unto him, he will turn unto them. Isn't that an amazing reality? That though there are those who are opposed to God, yet we have this season where if they turn unto him, he is willing and ready and desirous to turn unto us. That we would be on the side of the Lord of hosts. You see this, this statement about David quite a few times. Just a couple of examples. It says in 1 Samuel 17, Then said David to the Philistine, which we all know is Goliath, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Goliath should have fled if he had believed what David said. You have a sword and a spear. You have a shield. Who cares? I'm coming in the name of the Lord of hosts. And it says in 1 Chronicles 11, So David waxed greater and greater. Why? For the Lord of hosts was with him. Boy, these are short. I'm like running out of time here. How long am I supposed to go? Oh, okay. Nathan says whenever I want, so settle in. We'll be here till noon. Saturday, right? You don't have to work anyways. 
So, so one of the ideas of being with him, though, that you see in the scriptures, is that being with him as the Lord of hosts implies that we should obey him implicitly as the Lord of hosts. You follow me? In other words, if we have submitted to him and we're with him as the Lord of hosts, it implies that we should obey him implicitly as the Lord of hosts. You know, in, in, in the Roman times, a Roman soldier would be instantly executed if he dared disobey his Lord or his, his commander in any way. And yet, how often do we treat the word of God as if we can negotiate with it? Or the Holy Spirit as if we can negotiate? That, that the Holy Spirit convicts us in accordance with the word and, and, and we know that we need to make something right and he's like, okay, Lord, but maybe I can just get away with, with saying it like this. That way I don't have to expose myself fully. We try and negotiate with God. You recognize negotiating with God is called disobedience. It's called disobedience. So you have this story of Alexander Great. Alexander Great was 300 years before Christ. He was taking over the known world at that time. It's known as the Hellenization of the world. It's actually quite amazing how God used that to bring one language, Greek, to most of the known world, which then made it possible for the gospel to go all over the world within the short time of the apostles' lifespans because of what had taken place. So God really used him to prepare the way for the gospel to spread in quite an amazing way, um, even though he wasn't necessarily uh, the best man. So Alexander the Great is going to take over India, and on his way, he comes against this one castle. And the king of this, this castle comes out onto the walls, and he says, how dare you come against me? Why should I surrender to you? Because, of course, Napoleon, or, sorry, Alexander says, surrender. And the, the king says, no, why should I surrender? I've got more people than you do anyways, and I'm on the inside, you're on the outside. Come attack me. And Alexander the Great says, okay. So Alexander chooses his 100 best men, and he lines them up in single file because there was a cliff right next to this castle. And he says, march. And his best men start marching one at a time off the edge of his cliff. And it, one, two, three, four, they're just all marching straight off the cliff. Eleven of them march off the cliff, and Alexander calls halt. And the, the, the king of his castle is literally standing there stunned by the obedience of Alexander the Great's host. He's absolutely stunned. And he immediately hoists the white flag and says, we can't fight against a host like that. What would it look like if that was our sort of obedience to Jesus Christ? It, it, not questioning, not wondering what the purpose is. I mean, I'm sure those soldiers were walking off a cliff going, this isn't helping you're wasting all your best soldiers on nothing. And that was some earthly man. How much more ought we, as God's people, to obey him as the Lord of hosts? Now I want to close with this, just as our meditation. You recognize, and we've talked about this, I think several times even over the last several weeks, that the God of the Old Testament is Jesus. But they're not separate, but it's not as if God sort of decided to become nice in the New Testament and, and revealed himself as Jesus, but that we have our, our, our triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that have always been the same, that always have been, always will be, and that they are one. 
And, and, and we see this reality. And, and Jesus is the Lord of hosts. But it's not separate from him, but he is the Lord of hosts. Acts 2, 36. We have Peter standing up to preach boldly right after the Holy Spirit has come upon a church to preach to the congregation there. And he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made that same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. Now, he was speaking to Israel, first off, okay? And so he was talking about the house of Israel, knowing assuredly that he is Lord and Christ. And, and so they would have very quickly recognized he's talking about Jehovah. And everything that Jehovah is, Jesus is. And I think it's, it's quite a profound statement that he says, whom you have crucified. Can you imagine standing there in that crowd and he tells you that the one whom you crucified is the Lord of hosts? And yet then he goes on to talk about that God is showing mercy and, and, and willing that they should repent of their sins and that they would have, receive the Holy Spirit for repentance and faith in this Lord of great mercy. In Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 19, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things of a church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. And just as our closing meditation here, you recognize that the cross is a place where the Lord of hosts went to battle. You say the greatest moment in history where the Lord of hosts himself went to battle and defeated the powers of sin. There's this, this amazing passage in Jeremiah chapter 50, and it says, Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is his name. He shall thoroughly plead their cause. What an amazing reality. That the Lord of hosts is our Redeemer. And when the Lord of hosts sets out to do something, he gets it done. And he will thoroughly plead the cause of his people. Not part way, but thoroughly. It's like it talks about that he is able to save those who come to him to the uttermost. Thoroughly pleading our cause. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that, that reveals to us who you are. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just know it, but that we would believe it and that we would walk in the realities of this. Lord, for those who have been walking in fear or anxiety or, or stress or, or worry, Lord, would we walk in this reality of who you are as the Lord of hosts, that we would walk in that same boldness that Elisha had, that we would walk in that same boldness that Jesus had, that we would walk in the same boldness knowing that this, this Lord of hosts not only is with us, but dwells in us, and we in him through the Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you are holy, holy, holy. That you are sanctifying your people. 
Lord, we also recognize that you are dead set on destroying darkness. And I pray, Lord, that the fear of God would be upon us once again. But as Peter says, but as we call upon the name of the Father, that we would pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. Recognizing who you are. And yet, Lord, rejoicing in the reality that you have said, turn unto me, and I will turn unto you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.